This is episode 28. You're listening to the All Hazards Podcast, where we take you behind the scenes to give you exclusive access to emergency managers who've been on the front lines of some of the nation's most difficult challenges. Where we have candid conversations about the challenges facing all emergency managers, no matter how big or small the community. Here's your host, Sean Boyd. Welcome to another episode of the All Hazards Podcast. Today, we're going nuclear. This is the nightmare scenario for the state. What exactly is that nightmare? Hmm. Well, when it comes to nukes, there's a lot to think about for sure. Are you old enough to remember Three Mile Island? We're going to talk about how that event shaped Cal OES. And if there was some kind of nuclear incident near you, what's the one thing you can do to dramatically up your odds of survival? For those questions and more, we're going to talk with one of our experts on nukes here at Cal OES. He's going to tell us what surprised him most when he came to the Radiological Preparedness Unit, as well as a whole lot more right now. So in the studio with me today is a man by the name of Bill Potter. He is the Senior Emergency Services Coordinator for the Cal OES Radiological Preparedness Unit. Also, he is the program lead for the Nuclear Power Preparedness Program. Bill, thank you, man. Thanks for having Great me. Great to have you here. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. You and I just spent some time uh, down in San Diego uh, for uh, a symposium, a nuclear symposium uh, with the U.S. Navy. How did you feel that that went? For me, it was a lot of fun. It was fantastic. Yeah. We should be really proud of the fact that the Navy has their Squadron 11 of Los Angeles class nuclear attack subs, and it, it hosts or it home ports to uh, Nimitz class carriers in our state. That's something to really be proud of. Absolutely. And when you, you and I had the, the really rare and fabulous opportunity to go on board, spend a day out on the water and in the water uh, on the USS Scranton, which is uh, SSN 756 uh, fast attack submarine, 688 class. Uh, we got to do some maneuvers, got to really take it in and get a real sense as to what these machines and the people behind the machines are capable of. Very, very professional, um, incredibly dedicated, and to be proud, to say the least, but also to take comfort in the fact that we have these kinds of people, you know, at the helm. Oh, yeah. They're amazing. Yeah. And it was such an incredible experience. But so today, the reason that we wanted to have you in was to talk about the nuclear preparedness program here at Cal OES and, uh, you know, the radiological preparedness unit. I think a lot of people would be surprised to find out that uh, the governor's office of emergency services has a nuclear preparedness program. Have you gotten that sort of response from people that you've talked to who maybe didn't know what you did for a living? Um most people are surprised when I talk about anything that I have done for a living. <laughs> Why is that? Uh, it's always been around nuclear uh, issues, okay. uh, either weapons programs when I was in the Air Force or with uh, nuclear power here. Um, people are always happy to hear that we have a program that looks at the safety outside of nuclear plants in the state. So let's talk about that. We have a few nuclear power plants here in California. Some have gone offline, another one's going offline soon. What is the, the purpose of the program that you head up with regard to those nuclear power plants? 
Well, our program, the, the Nuclear Power Preparedness Program, was created to manage the off-site safety programs that are required by a state or a local jurisdiction if there's a nuclear power plant in your jurisdiction or state. And this all came about in 1980 here in California when we passed laws to create this program, which of course happened because of the Three Mile Island event. Three Mile Islands, that's going back to the late 70s, 79? Yes. Okay, all right. So uh, I remember that very well, or pretty well. I was a kid, uh, but I was living outside of Boston. And I remember hearing about it on the news. Of course, back then it was Walter Cronkite, one of my heroes, and, uh, and, and watching what was unfolding on the news. But the news played an interesting role in what happened with Three Mile Island. Go ahead and talk a little bit about what you know about Three Mile Island and how that impacted what we're doing today. Right. What we're doing today really came about because of the events that unfolded for Dick Thornburg, the governor of Pennsylvania, because of Three Mile Island. When he was only in office for six, six, six weeks or so, he got a phone call in the morning telling him that there was a general emergency at Three Mile Island. Which, of course, for those people who, who may not know, it's a big nuclear power plant at Three Mile Island. Right, with several right. units. Yes. And so it was unit two at Three Mile Island. And he was told that they had a general emergency. And his reply was, well, what's that? What does this mean to me, the governor? And the utility said, well, it means that we are having a real bad problem and we're going to get a handle on this shortly. And so that was the 28th of March. And throughout that day, he got several confusing messages from the utility. Um, on the 29th of March, the NRC was calling him up saying the emergency is over. And then later on that day, the NRC called him up and said there may be a radioactive release from the plant. So Dick Thornburg really was put into a difficult position. There was no established procedure for him to follow. His staff didn't know what to do. And it seems like he could not understand or believe what he was being told by the regulatory agency or the operating agency. Yeah, you're getting contradicting information. So eventually he called the president, Jimmy Carter, and he said, I need help. So Jimmy Carter sent out his emissary and they sat down and said, okay, this is what's going on. This is what's happening right now. And... In that process, Dick Thornburg had asked that uh, pregnant women and children under the age of five evacuate within five miles of the plant. And from that, about 140,000 people evacuated from the area. And on the 1st of April, uh, Jimmy Carter and his wife and Dick Thornburg, they toured the plant. And there's a bunch of images in the media from that. Uh, and they did not declare the event over and return everybody until the 18th of April. So this was a huge problem. And so throughout this, all these issues happened for Dick Thornburg. He didn't know what was going on. He didn't understand the language that was being used in this event. He didn't understand uh, what the health effects of the radiation were supposed to be or could be. And just one thing after another, to the point where he didn't have a room big enough for his staff and the experts to all meet in to discuss these things. Hmm. It was a very, very bad situation for a, a governor. For any governor, let alone someone who's come on board for just a few weeks. Right. right? So this uh, major impact, I remember it, uh, it was a meltdown, wasn't it? It was. It was a what we call a loss of coolant accident. Okay. And the utility actually did it to themselves 
because they misset a switch, which allowed the water out of the pressure, uh, one of the components, the pressurizer. And so enough water came out of the reactor to uncover the core. And so they had a meltdown of the fuel within the core. Wow. Now, as a cautionary tale, this is something you should not do. However, it is also something where all of our reactors have to have containment domes. And so any kind of problem that was going on inside of there was, was contained. And the radiation release was manual by the utility because they were worried that there would be a hydrogen uh, detonation inside a containment. Wow. So to preclude that from happening, they opened up and vented uh, the containment area. Uh, a very minor level of uh, radioactive tri uh, tritium and he came out with the with the hydrogen. But uh, there's never been any established health risk to that in at least 18 studies since then. Wow. This was the beginning or the catalyst of a series of events that happened uh, to make sure this kind of thing didn't happen again in the future. Right. So afterwards, the president ordered the the, the establishment of the Kearney Commission where they took a look at everything that happened to the utility, to Dick Thornburg, the governor, and the local population. And when the Kearney Commission concluded and wrote their report, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission took that information and created what's called New Reg 0654, or Nuclear Regulatory Guidance 0654. And within that document, it goes through 128 criteria that are required of a local jurisdiction or a state to have to fulfill if they have a nuclear power plant within their territory. So case in point, Dick Thornburg did not know what was going on when they called him up and said there was a general emergency. So the new reg requires there to be general terms that are all used at all the nuclear power plants and, and in all the states. So a general emergency is the worst emergency that can happen at a nuclear power plant. So in addition to common language that is required to be used by the utility, the state, and the local jurisdictions, uh, this is the first place we see where guidance says you have to have an emergency operations center where everybody can come together and to essentially fight the issue. Um, also, it demands that you have a joint information center. And the story behind the joint information center is really very important here because during Three Mile Island, most of the media had no place to go to get the message. They all went in front of the plant to start off with. But the governor didn't know what to say to the public. And his, his uh, media people didn't have a message to give out. The utility was not putting out a message, nor was the NRC. So essentially, the media took over and filled in that gap. A lot of speculation there, I bet. Oh, and it was. And uh, New Rego 654 stipulates that you have to have a joint information center. And the story behind that is really interesting at Three Mile Island. Their me the media was not called to any one location for media releases, so it went to the gate of the plant. Whereas the, the governor was at the Capitol, the utilities offices were elsewhere, and the NRC was down in Virginia. So they had no place to go to get a message, and no clear message was coming out from anyone. So they had to guess. Right. They the filled part, in the right? gap. Yeah. And so New York 0654 says that we have to have a joint information center where the media can go and the local jurisdiction and the state and the utility must have a message to put out after any decision is made to protect the public. And that's exactly what we were discovering during this symposium is that they, the, the U.S. Navy 
uh, along with uh, nuclear reactors. They, they had a very set sort of template by which they followed to make sure that they got those messages out. And they had it down to the minute. Yeah. Which was interesting. <laughs> it was fun to watch. Um, and there are many similarities between the processes that they're following because um, the Atomic Energy Commission, when it first formed up, started many of these actions. Okay. And the Navy had it down before the commercial reactors did. And the commercial reactors finally got their uh, collective processes solidified right. after New Rego 654 was published. Wow. And so this whole event here, Three Mile Island, and everything that followed from it, all of the the deficiencies that were documented, all those things led to a whole host of changes oh, yes. in this regulatory, uh, this uh, new reg 0654. So much came out of that, including really the way that we operate today here at Cal OES. Right. It really is the establishment of formalized emergency management in the United States. And further, we've, we've exported it out to other countries as well. But if you look at what California has embraced uh, through the years, you see that the nuclear power preparedness program and civil defense back in the 80s and the 70s were there, and that evolved through time. And it's kind of fun to see this because after Three Mile Island, everybody was waiting for something to happen at our three operating nuclear power plants at the time here in California. Um, however, nothing happened. Uh, all the safety systems were improved upon, how they operate the plant, how we communicate to one another, uh, and how the plants actually make things work and how safe they are was all improved upon. So after a decade or two here in California, we started noticing that we didn't have any of those problems, but we did have earthquakes, forest fires, tsunamis, floods, uh, avalanches, landslides on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And so you can see the evolution here in Cal OES into an all hazards program for emergency management. And it's really fun to look at that and realize that it was the it was our program, the nuclear power program, that literally started this all hazards planning movement in the state and the country. But Cal OES had to start somewhere. And from what I understand here by looking at some notes, uh, is that back in the 80s, nuclear power preparedness and, of course, what was going on then and what we were all studying in school was the Cold War. Mm -hmm. That civil defense portion of it was really kind of at the heart of Cal OES back then, wasn't it? Or, it, it was. Yeah. It was a huge portion of what was going on. But then that evolved into what we are today, which is maybe still obviously paying a lot of attention to the nuclear power uh, industry and, and training and being prepared, but we've got so many other things on our plate as well. Right. Well, really what has been looked at is the risk from nuclear power is very small. And the risk from a landslide, an avalanche, a flood, a tsunami, um, those are very real, and these things happen on a regular basis. That's right. Look at forest fires, the catastrophic fires in Lake County last year, mm -hmm. um, the ones in Santa Barbara, San Bernardino. I mean, yeah. these things kill people. They, they upend lives. These are real events that happen on a regular reoccurring basis here. Right. But nevertheless... 
the radiological preparedness unit has a major role. And you being the, uh, the senior emergency services coordinator for that unit, when you first took on that job, what were some of the, the things that surprised you the most? What surprised me was uh, the culture change that occurred uh, from working emergency management and the culture at San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station and the different culture at the Diablo Canyon Power Plant and how the off-site entities were so different hmm. and the culture that we have here in emergency management, being able to understand and hop back and forth between each one of those. Um, here we have Sacramento. We have our director who works for the governor. Um, at Diablo Canyon, we have a fairly out-of-the-way rural environment where a city and county run things for the plant. At San Onofre, we had Orange County, San Diego County, and uh, three cities down there. And, you know, L.A. would get involved as well. A lot of cooks in the kitchen. Right. And so mm -hmm. it was a different culture for, for that. But the thing that ties all of us together, of course, is our state law and Nurego 654. Okay. So part of what you do is to make sure that the state, Cal OES, is ready to respond in the event of some kind of nuclear incident, right? Right. We manage the program from the state level. So all of us in the radiological preparedness unit have assignments if there is an emergency at one of the nuclear power plants. Well, now just the one that's operating, right. Diablo Canyon. And we will deploy immediately to go out and assist the decision makers in the county and the health physics folks come up with a calculation of what kind of exposure the public would receive and ensuring that their health officer and county decision makers have the absolute best information possible to make the best decision to protect the public. Right. Now, we were also part of a training uh, exercise. Uh, it was last year. Was it 2016? Oh, yes. Boy, time flies. Uh, yeah, to uh, to simulate. It was better than a tabletop exercise. It was, you know, we were out there and actually got to tour the facility, which was really interesting. Um, but that's all part of being prepared. It's that exercising with real, sort of real world events. Right. That was a full scale exercise of what we would do after a nuclear power disaster. And uh, that was a two year planning, planning event up to the exercise. And we wrote that here mm. at Cal OES. And we brought in uh, four different counties to participate in it, and we brought in their health officers, their CAOs, their board of supervisors, and we brought them all together in one room and provided them with, these are the hazards that your communities are facing. And we made recommend recommendations on how to protect the public, and they decided what they would do and how they would implement those things that they did. So, and they're graded? Yes, they are. FEMA evaluates us. So the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has an agreement with FEMA. And the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, they evaluate within the fence line of the nuclear power plant, and FEMA evaluates the local jurisdictions around the, the plant. So as part of the ingestion pathway exercise that we participated in, Cal OES's PIO group was also involved in that. And me being a relative newcomer to Cal OES and state service, uh, I was trying to figure out, you know, what my role was going to be. Um, PIOs don't have a lot of nuclear experience. Yeah, that's usually true. But 
Our OPI, Office of Public Information, is a critical part of the NPP program. As a matter of fact, messaging in general in the Nuclear Power Preparedness Program is a key component. No matter how much we get right, if we don't tell the public we're doing things or what the order is for the public to do, if they can't get that message and protect themselves, then we fail as emergency managers and as nuclear power preparedness people. And so our OPI here has been part of the MPP program for many years, and they participate in our regular uh, plume phase exercises every two years when we break a nuclear power plant and what we have to do with the local chick. But in our exercise every six years, when we do the ingestion exercise, we have a very large joint information center that the state puts together and puts out the messages that the decision makers make. And so it's really important to understand that no matter how technical everything gets and how many great, smart people that I have on board to do the calculations, unless I have that PIO to put the message out to the public, then I fail. So it's, it's this interlocking systems of science and messaging, and that's really what we need right now for almost everything. So Diablo Canyon, I understand, is closing uh, somewhere right around 2024. That will be our last and only uh, nuclear power plant to go bye-bye. Right. Uh, we had uh, four operational power plants at one time here in the state. Three have closed, and they're all still in the process of decommissioning. What's the point? Why? Well, San, well, Rancho Seco here in Sacramento closed, just outside of Sacramento. Um, it closed due to a non-binding referendum by the local community. And the utility went ahead and went with that because it had become too expensive to operate. Uh, at a nuclear power plant, you have to have a culture of safety that was not achievable at the time. And it was a very difficult decision by them, but they went ahead and, and made that decision and made that choice. Hmm. Um, the uh, steam stacks are still out there. They're quite the landmark and they'll stay there for quite a while. But most of the radiological stuff is done. And so that was in 1986, 89, I think it was, where the final vote was made. Um, and they're still finishing up the decommissioning process. Wow, that's a long process. Right. And it always takes that. San Onofre closed due to the accident they had with their steam generators. Um, it was just a cost straightforward decision that they made. They were not willing to put another billion dollars into upgrading the uh, steam generators. And so they went to their investors. They made the choice. Diablo Canyon took a look at what the price of electricity is and some of the recent laws here in California and regulations that have been enacted. So they made a choice to not pursue getting their license reestablished or continued after 2024 and 2025 for the two reactors. Nuclear incidents is not a topic that's easy on the stomach, but it's of the utmost importance when you work for an emergency response agency. Coming up in the second half... This is the nightmare scenario for the state. Bill's going to talk about that as well as his own response to a couple of real-life incidents, one here in California and a brief one halfway around the world, a little place called Chernobyl. And as always, we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast at either the iTunes or Google Play stores. That way you'll have any and all episodes right there at your fingertips whenever you need to kill a little bit of time. 
And if you're a regular listener or if you already subscribe, thank you. Be sure to take a moment to comment on our website too, oesnews.com, then click on podcasts. All right, back to the show. I get the impression uh, because nuclear energy, nuclear power, um, whether it's on a submarine or whether it's at Diablo Canyon, uh, is a very safe, highly, highly regulated uh, industry that you may be um, maybe a little bored on the response end of things. <laughs> you don't want to respond, but you're ready to respond. Uh, have you ever had to respond in any way to some kind of possible event? At a nuclear power plant? Yeah. There, there have been a couple of uh, um, alerts and unusual okay. events. Okay. Uh, there was an alert at San Onofre right after a planning meeting that we had when the entire unit was down in the Orange County EOC. Oh, so they uh, they declared an alert at San Onofre, and we just happened to be right there with the Orange County folks. And uh, we just stepped off into a room and started our function uh, with them. And uh, it was uh, it was taken care of rather quickly. It was a hazmat spill at the nuclear power plant okay. in a room that prevented the easy access to certain safety equipment. Oh. So it didn't affect any of the nuclear stuff. Right. It just affected the ability of the utility operators to get into a location if something happened. I see. And that's the level of, uh, of concern they have there. So they declared an alert, which is the second, high, uh, the second level of uh, emergencies there. Okay. And uh, it was kind of exciting. Yeah, I bet it was. Exciting, yes, but also uneventful in the sense that, thank goodness, there wasn't anything major. It was minor. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I don't, we're emergency managers at heart. Um, everybody in our unit is on an IST here, an incident support team. We're all uh, trained emergency managers. I'm an ops chief, a plans chief, a technical specialist. Um, my other cohorts are ops chiefs and logistics and plans people. Mm -hmm. um, this is what we do in addition to emergency management. But we're trained, we're ready. Um, we don't want those events to happen, but we certainly enjoy exercising them out and going through the motions that we do. Right. It's a challenge, and we run into obstacles quite often, things that we had never seen before, and we fix them, and we fix them quickly. Are you a math genius? No. No. To me, I get the impression that anybody who works in nuclear uh, power in that industry has to be a math genius. There. There are really, really smart people in this program. Um, down at, uh, you know, at the NRC, um, down at the utility, the health physicists who do the job, it is all math. Mm. And you are calculating the release to a distance out and what the dose would be with the people. Um, some of the people we met down in the Navy Symposium, there were some geniuses walking oh, around that brilliant. room. Oh, brilliant. Oh, yeah. And here, uh, what, uh, what we haven't mentioned is that we partner with the California Department of Public Health, and they have both the radiological health branch and the nuclear emergency response program. And there are people over, over there that are just, just way out of my league and smarts. Mm. And they have the math down, and they get this totally. And we rely on them to do a lot of these activities. We manage the event. They actually man the event for us. So it's, it's, it's this marriage of capability 
and, uh, and jurisdiction. Well, of course, one of the things that we haven't talked about at this point is uh, nuclear weaponry. Um, can't, can't ignore that, especially with what's going on over there across the Pacific. North Korea has got uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, military folks and civilian alike uh, kind of a little concerned. Tell me about uh, what we're doing to plan for any kind of a response with regard to nuclear weapons. Well, the nuclear weapon plan for the state of California is under development right now. Okay. But it's not just for our friends in North Korea. Right. Um, this applies to any rogue individual or state that may want to detonate a weapon in our state. A dirty bomb, something like that. Anything, yeah. Right? Um, there are many different ways to do this. Uh, mm. The first thing that we were looking at was an event like Fukushima where uh, debris from the event could be coming into California. That's a very realistic risk. And so, you know, that needs to be part of a plan. Um, having someone want to attack us somehow with radioactive material, let's say a dirty bomb or just a large exposure device and putting it in a public place to where people would get a, a bad dose of radiation as they were around that point. Uh, or a dirty bomb where you use an explosive to disperse radioactive materials. Uh, and, of course, a nuclear weapon. Yeah. And so that's what we're planning for right now is the nuclear weapon. Uh, we're looking at um, all the ways and all the things that we have to do to preserve as much life as possible. This is unlike any other kind of event that we have in the state. Um, it's somewhat similar to an earthquake, somewhat similar to a flood. The difference is, is that not only does the event kill hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, but the fallout from the event can kill just as many. And so we have this ongoing event that just doesn't stop. Mm. Um, and it's invisible. You can't see it. You have to be able to measure it. Um, this is the nightmare scenario for the state. So we've begun doing this. The nice thing about a nuclear power plant program that we have is that it's at one location. And the population around the plant is trained with sirens and mailings, and every year they exercise the sirens. Uh, the evacuation routes are published in the media. We don't know where someone would attack California with a nuclear weapon, which city it would go to, mm -hmm. and what location. So we can't really put up sirens everywhere, and we don't have the capability to train everywhere. But what we can do is come up with a program where we get enough people to shelter in place after a nuclear weapon detonation, and we can save hundreds of thousands of lives. And if we are organized enough, we could have phased evacuations of those people that we've sheltered and getting the hospitals ready for the traumatic onslaught of personnel and people that have been injured by the weapon. And I mean, from there, it just goes down the road. It seems like um, a massive mountain to climb with maybe one leg to stand on. <laughs> well, we have a really sturdy leg. The things yeah. that we have learned from the Nuclear Power Preparedness Program, though not all of it is applicable here, but the skill set and planning and exercise and drilling and planning and evaluating and drilling and planning, that really plays in here for us because mm -hmm. we take those skills and we apply them now to this new risk. And it's really pretty simple. A bomb is going to go off. It's going to be very, very bad. How do we keep people alive? Yeah, yeah. And that's obviously a scenario uh, we don't want to have to respond to. 
But we would be remiss, to say the least, if we didn't plan for something like that. Right, and that's exactly why we're doing it now. Yeah, it's a scary thought, for sure. And I think this is where I step in and I say, this is yet another reason why you need to have a preparedness kit. You need to have a preparedness plan as a as an individual, as a family, as a business. What would happen if all of a sudden something nuclear was to happen and you were in an affected area? What would you do? Where would you go? After uh, after a fission act, when you when you separate the the atom and you have the bomb go off, a lot of the energy and the radioactive material, the the fallout is going to be gone in the first hour. Mm. And so if we can just get people undercover and sheltering in place within that first hour, we are going to save hundreds of thousands of lives. Then after that, what we do is we calculate rapidly, and this is where our friends at CDPH are so necessary, what kind of exposure people would get if they evacuated from a location A and were able to evacuate out without anybody impeding them as opposed to location B. If if the exposure that they receive from the fallout in that location is so low now that they can get out with a minimum exposure, then we want those people to go and we'd order them to do so. Hmm. So what are some three takeaways? What are three takeaways that you would say right now for anyone listening to this podcast? What should they walk away knowing? A, in California, the nuclear power program and our nuclear power industry is extremely safe. And the communities around them are extremely prepared if there is an accident, be it a nuclear power one or if there's a landslide, a fire, a flood. The second is, is that um, if there is a nuclear attack on the state by a nuclear weapon, it's not going to be what we were worried about in the 1980s. It's not going to be black raining death. You can survive a attack with a weapon. Go inside, brush yourself off, tune in, and get instructions from the local authorities, and you'll live. Hmm. And the third is, these are all really morbid discussions. They kind of are. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of our world. But the reality is, is that both of these events, anything that would happen radiologically or nuclear, are extremely small risks in our day. Driving here on Highway 50 was the most dangerous thing I'm going to do all year. Mm -hmm. And the risk comparison of just driving to work and home from work is far greater than anything that could happen from either of those others. That is so important to say because we do. We, we tend to live a vicarious life through Hollywood. And right. we think everything, you know, the world's going to come to an end. Um, but... Uh, you can't ignore these things and you have to be prepared. But I like the fact that you say, it's kind of like, you know, we always talk about flying and how dangerous it is. Well, the reality is planes rarely crash. Right. Cars crash every second of every day. Oh, yeah. So that is definitely more dangerous than anything any of us will do throughout the year, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Or being a pedestrian or a bicyclist here in California, very scary stuff. Absolutely. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we call it quits for today? I think one of the areas that we didn't discuss was in the planning area itself, where we sit down, we do the community work, we bring the experts together, and we write plans. And we're doing that right now for the nuclear weapon. We have them for the nuclear power. Um, we have a Navy nuclear propulsion program plan. 
Um, and we have ingestion pathway plans for what would happen after a nuclear event uh, to our agricultural industry. And one of the things that we like to say in the Nuclear Power Preparedness Program is, is that plagiarism is the highest form of flattery. And we have provided all of our plans to all any comers uh, from the industry in the other states. They've come from all over the place asking, you know, you, you just did an ingestion pathway. Could we have your plan? And I just give them everything that, they, that we have. And you say copy it or put your name, your name on it. Right. Whatever. Go exactly. for it. Okay. And I think uh, that's, that's one of the habits that we have that we really need to share with all of our other programs and plans. I know our uh, earthquake early preparedness uh, program that's going on now, they're working with other people who are providing them with inf information from other nations. So uh, this is a habit that we need to make sure continues. Listen, Bill, appreciate you coming by. Um, this has been great, very informative for me. Hang tough, man. You know, keep that uh, that KI tablet with you or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, is that what it is? KI potassium iodide. Yeah, yeah, it's KI. Um, we very rarely go to a place where we need it, but we have go kits for our southern region folks and mm. ourselves in case a health officer or somebody tells us we need to take it. Uh, you won't ever need to take it. I'm I, I'm foreseeing that right now. You don't need to. Uh, not again, no. Oh, you've taken it before? <laughs> yeah, during the Chernobyl event, uh, when I was in the Air Force, we were sampling the uh, affluent from the Chernobyl event. So our job was to fly through the plume cloud and take samples. So nice. we took potassium iodide because of the amount of radioiodine in the in the gas. Yeah, yeah. Is it a tablet or a... Yeah, it's a, It's just a salt, little tablet. Oh, okay. All right. Um, you shouldn't take it unless you're told to. It's just a, uh, it's just a huge dose of potassium to yeah, your body. Okay. And the iodine that's in there, uh, some people might have a reaction to it. Oh. Um, however, it's not a magic pill. It is not going to protect you from all the radiation, only for the radioactive iodine that might go into your thyroid. It'll it'll help with, stop that from happening. Okay. Well, I'm trying to debate whether or not I should put some of that in my go kit or not. All you have to do is ask me before you go. <laughs> All right, very good. All right, Bill, appreciate it, man. Thanks, Thanks very much. Good to have you here. It's been a hoot. Getting back to Diablo Canyon, when that one closes in about seven years, Bill's radiological preparedness unit will cease to exist. The law doesn't mandate this kind of unit if there aren't any active nuclear power plants in the state. Bill says the remaining nuke planning and preparedness will shift to another unit here at Cal OES. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember to subscribe at the iTunes or Google Play stores, and we'd love to hear what you think about all hazards. And if you have any ideas, shoot them our way. We'd love to hear them. I'm Sean Boyd. Thanks for listening, everyone. Take care and be safe. You've been listening to the Cal OES All Hazards Podcast. Don't forget to check out our podcast page where you can find past episodes along with show notes and links. And give us a social shout-out. Tell others about us on Twitter and Facebook. And let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you.